Coming up next, please join us for Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 131. Abi Ben Mordechai here. Shalom. You're tuned into Real Israel Talk Radio. This is podcast episode 131 and a part 18 analysis of Yeshua's last Passover week timeline of events leading to his crucifixion and his third day resurrection. In our previous analysis, podcast episode 130 and program series part 17, I walked you through events 15 through 19, events that I have identified as part of the overall events that shaped the last week of Yeshua's earthly ministry, resulting in his fifth day of the week crucifixion, what we would refer to as a Thursday, and his seventh day resurrection. Let's now continue where we left off at event number 20 from our last program based on Luke 22, 66 through 71. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council. This, of course, refers to the Jerusalem Sanhedrin, saying, quote, If you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, meaning if I ask you if you think that I am the Messiah, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Here and after, said Yeshua, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of Elohim, or God, as this was Yeshua's answer to them, based on the prophetic word of the book of Daniel. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. This event is where Yeshua was on trial before the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. The time was still early in the morning on the fourth day of the week, what we refer to as Wednesday. On the Judean lunar calendar, the date was the 13th of the first Chodesh, or the first month. On the Sons of Tzedok solar calendar, the date was the 15th of the first Chodesh, or the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The Jerusalem Council needed to wrap up all testimony and quickly draw that courtroom drama to a close by the end of their day. Again, I ask why? Because with the sunset of that very night, their calendar date would then change from the 13th to the 14th of the first month, which we know would be the eve of their Passover. So according to their court rules in the Mishnah, Sanhedrin 4, section 1, they were forbidden to carry on their courtroom deliberations on the eve of a festival 
or on the eve of a Sabbath. We can read about it in their Jewish oral law. Again, Sanhedrin 4, section 1. In cases of capital law, the court may conclude the deliberations and issue the ruling even on that same day to acquit the accused, but must wait until the following day to pronounce him guilty. Thus the Jerusalem Sanhedrin court sealed their judgment prior to sunset on that late Wednesday, and they waited until Thursday morning to see that Yeshua was set off to his crucifixion. They were not about to acquit him or let him go on that Wednesday. This brings us to event 21, which now is the second questioning of Yeshua by Pilate early Thursday morning. Yeshua was once again brought before Pilate for a second interview with the one man of the Roman government who could sign off on Yeshua's death warrant and send him off to his crucifixion. I'm sure that Pontius Pilatus must have been a busy man. According to the calendar of the Judeans, again, it was the 14th of the first month, called Aviv or Nisan, meaning for them... It was their Passover preparation day on that Thursday morning. And according to historical records, Pilate began his day very early that morning. This is confirmed in John 19.14. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover. And about the sixth hour... And he said to the Jews or the Judeans, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! As the narrative states, it was about the sixth hour. Normally, one might assume that this refers to the sixth hour on the Judean reckoning of a day, meaning it would have been about six hours after sunrise, or what we would say was 12 noon, when Yeshua appeared before Pilate. But we know that he did not appear for his second interview before Pilate at about 12 noon that day, but that it had to be at about 0600 hours in that early morning based on three points. Point number one, with sundown on the previous evening, the Judean calendar date shifted from the 13th to the 14th, meaning that the Thursday morning that they were meeting with Pilate, that was now the Judean Passover preparation day, as John 19.14 tells us. That is, on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish year, when during the afternoon daylight hours of that day, the Passover lamb was to be presented for slaughter in the temple. Point number two. 
At twelve midnight, according to the Roman reckoning of a day, it was already a new day. Therefore, it was called today. You see, during the all-night hours of that Wednesday, leading into what we would call Thursday morning, Pilate's wife had a dream, as it is recorded for us in the narrative at Matthew 27:19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, that's Pilate, his wife sent to him. Now, this is a Thursday morning. She sent him a message saying, quote, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So it appears that she had a dream during the nighttime hours. Point number three. According to the synoptic gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by 12 noon or the sixth hour from sunrise on that Thursday, at least according to the Jewish reckoning of the day, Yeshua was already hanging on the crucifixion stake. So let's take a look at this for a moment. Matthew, or Matthew, records the information now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Mark records it as, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And Luke records the information saying, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the night. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Well, given these points, we are left with only one timestamp option that makes logical and chronological sense. In the Gospel of John, 1914, the sixth hour is according to the Roman reckoning of a day. This means it was six hours after midnight or about six o'clock in the morning, Thursday. And it was at this same time when the Judean high court Pharisees and scribes and elders of the Sanhedrin presented Yeshua before Pilate for his second interview. And this follows the recorded event from Luke 23, 14 through 16. You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. This is Pilate speaking. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, this is using the Greek past tense, which took place the previous morning, being Wednesday morning, Pilate says, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you on to him. The Greek says, I sent you on to a higher or more appropriate authority. And you can see the Greek text of Acts twenty-five twenty-one to understand it that way. So then we learn that Pilate sent Yeshua on to Herod, the previous morning, meaning yesterday morning, Wednesday. 
and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. This is Pilate speaking this to the Jerusalem religious leaders. So he says, I will therefore chastise him and release him. Now, early on that fifth day, being Thursday morning, Yeshua once again was taken to Pilate. Again, this is his second interview. After some time going back and forth between Yeshua inside and the religious crowd outside at the entrance to Pilate's praetorium, there was yet further manipulating of Pilate, along with a lot of commotion and howling and shouting. Pilate sought to quiet the situation and make a deal with them. Now, considering it was the Judean Passover preparation day, but not on the 14th of the month, but rather on the 16th of the month, because they're going by lunar reckoning. And so on the day they were making all that commotion in front of Pilate for Yeshua's second interview, it was already two days after the sons of Sadok Passover, which occurred on the true biblical 14th of the first month. So Pilate then said to the Judeans in John 18, 39 through 40, You have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber or we could say a political zealot. The dialogue between Yeshua and Pilate continued on for a short time on that Thursday morning, resulting in Pilate essentially signing the order to send Yeshua off to his crucifixion. Once again, John reminds us in 19.14-16. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Judeans, Behold your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he, Pilate, delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Yeshua and led him away. Now it's important to notice that John writes the term the Jews over and over again. Well, what's this all about? You see, after all, John or Yohanan, he was Jewish. So why does he say the Jews? He was expressing that he did not support the practices and the viewpoints of the Judeans. And so in his narrative, he made a point to separate himself from what he believed and what they believed. In other words, it appears to me that John was actually sympathetic toward the theology and viewpoints of his family heritage, which was likely from the sons of Tzadok or the Qumran community people, as we can see from all the other narratives that John conveyed in his literary work. 
looked particularly for this statement, quote, of the Jews in John's gospel narratives. And you will clearly see the separation of himself from the Judeans and wanting nothing to do with them. Let's now go on to event number 22. This is about Yeshua, who is being carried out or led out to the place of the skull. Based on John 19.17, we now learn this. And he, bearing his cross, meaning he was bearing the stake or the pole, or often called a tree that was put into a hole in the ground, he went out to a place called a skull, Golgotha. The term Golgotha is derived from the Aramaic word Gulgutha, or in Hebrew, Gogolet. Now, this means a skull. And you can see the use of this word in Hebrew passages, such as Judges 9.33. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his Gogolet, his skull. Also in 2 Kings 9.35, now this concerns Jezebel, so they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the gogolet, or the skull, and the feet, and the palms of her hands. Yeah, it's pretty gruesome, but it's just the term gogolet representing her skull. Now, the word golgatha is the anglicized term for gogolet, or golgatha in Aramaic. It just simply means a skull. Also, a known colloquial expression, among others like nephesh, to mean a soul or a person. For example, today we often use the word soul to mean a living person, such as it is often said, how many souls are there on board your aircraft? I've heard that term many times when the control tower at an airport is speaking with a pilot. How many souls are on board your aircraft? And the biblical narratives often describe a person as a soul, or if you wish, a skull, as if to say, how many skulls are on board your aircraft? But that would be kind of a strange way to speak, so they just simply say how many souls and not skulls. Now in Jerusalem, there was a primary burial place for skulls or people. The place was called Gogolet, the place of the skull, or perhaps the burial place of a person. Now, this place was a known Jerusalem burial ground on Harazitim, or in English, the Mount of Olives. Even more than this, however, is the role that the Mount of Olives served when it came to life, death, and religious rituals. One such example is found in the book of Hebrews 13, verses 11 through 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, they are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Yeshua also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, 
suffered outside the gate, meaning the gate of the camp of the city. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. On the Mount of Olives, the high priest burned the remains of slaughtered animals for sin and carried out the ashes to a clean place. In Hebrew, this is defined as Bamakom Tahor, understood from Leviticus 4.12, Leviticus 4.21, 6.11, and even in Numbers 19.3 and Numbers 19.9. This place in Hebrew, Bamakom Tahor, is actually a ritually clean place, and there was a pit at that location that received the sacrificial ashes outside the camp as a distance of 2,000 cubits or about 900 meters from the city of Jerusalem, and more specifically, from the seat of the Sanhedrin in the chamber of hewn stone in the temple. Any condemned to death soul or skull or person, as we would say, that person had to be executed on a judgment of blaspheming the name as specified in the Torah of Moses. So we read in Leviticus or Vayikra 24.16, And whoever blasphemes the name of Jehovah shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger, as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. So this is precisely the sentence that the Jerusalem Sanhedrin brought against Yeshua when he declared to be the sent Messiah of the eternal name of Yehovah, according to Psalm 2, verses 6 through 7, and Daniel 7, 13, which is what we learn from Matthew, or Matityahu, 26, 65. Quote, Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. So the place of Yeshua's execution took place at the middle summit of the three peaks on the Mount of Olives, which was along a known footpath that King David himself ascended, according to 2 Samuel 15.20. So David went up by the ascent of the olives, meaning the Mount of Olives, and wept as he went up. So this path was known as the way to Jerusalem, via Jericho, Bethany, and Beit Pagay. It was the most common of the traveled roads of the Judeans who came on pilgrimage from Galilee to Jerusalem, especially during the feast days. The road ascended up and over the middle summit of the three peaks of the Mount of Olives and then descended down into the Kidron Valley 
and then up again into the city of Jerusalem and the temple. For maximum exposure, the Romans and the religious Jews of Jerusalem knew that there could be no better place to publicly crucify a man in the sight of all men, especially if he was accused of blaspheming the name of Jehovah. But for Yeshua, he was quite clear of his identity as he confidently spoke about it in Matthew 23, 37-39. Now we're going to take a quick break, and Yah willing, we'll come back here in just a moment to continue on with event number 23. This is about weeping for Yeshua. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. This is Real Israel Talk Radio. Welcome back to the second half of Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 131. Here is your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. Okay, we're back, and this is Avi Ben Mordechai. You're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. Let's go on to event number 23. This is about weeping for Yeshua. Yeshua began a statement as it's recorded in Luke 23, 27-31, saying, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your sons. As Yeshua was being let out in anguish, and stinging pain to his crucifixion at the place of the skull, a great crowd followed. Among them were women of Jerusalem mourning and lamenting for him. At that moment, Yeshua turned to them and spoke in his dreadful distress several horrific declarations. The statements are recorded for us in Luke 23, 27 through 31. Please permit me to break each of them down for us. The first statement that's made is in Luke 23, 27 through 28, when he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your sons. Now, it's possible this is connected to Jeremiah 2, 11 through 17, and I'm abridging this for a reading of time. Let's begin with verses 2 through 5. Hear, or Shema, the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Yehuda and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say to them, Thus says the Master Yehovah of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not do the words of this covenant which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. Now let's skip over to verses 11 through 17. Therefore, thus says Jehovah, Behold, I will surely bring calamity. The Hebrew word there is an evil spirit 
I will bring an evil spirit on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and the number of the streets of Jerusalem. You have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. So do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer for them. For I will not hear in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. What has my beloved to do in my house, having done deceitful actions with many, and the holy, or if you will, the separated flesh, has passed from you when you do evil, then you rejoice. Jehovah called your name luxurious, or in Hebrew, the term is, he called your name leafy, like an olive tree, lovely of good fruit, with the noise of a great crowd, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches, or his sons, the branches of the Netzarim, are bad, meaning they're damaged, they're not even fit for use. For Yehovah Tsevaot, who planted you, has pronounced evil, or an evil spirit, against you. For the evil of the house of Israel and the house of Yehuda, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Now let's go on to the second statement of Yeshua in Luke twenty-three twenty-nine. For indeed days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs not bearing and the breasts not nursing. The statement appears, at least on the surface, to point toward the skulls or the souls of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, waiting for the last day messianic resurrection. Now, this is actually how I'm reading it based on the words of Kohelet or Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3 in Hebrew. So let me give it to you the way I'm reading it. This doesn't mean I'm correct. It just means this is how I'm looking at it as I'm reading it from the Hebrew, okay? Now look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. In biblical parlance, the comforter is a biblical metaphor describing Jehovah as the messianic savior. He's called the comforter, the tears of the oppressed, but they don't have a comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they, referring to the oppressed, have no comforter. This is from the Hebrew word menachem or menachem. But I am to rest with the Aleph Tav, meaning the Messiah and the Aleph Tav resurrection. When now they are dead, from the lives that they will live in Eden, because the good, they live twice with the Aleph Tav, 
the Messiah, the word of Eden. He has not seen the works of evil, which they all do under the sun. And again, I want to stress, this is how I am reading it when I'm reading it from the Hebrew text. Your English translation will likely not produce the same results in the same way that I have looked at this text for myself. Now, given the words that Yeshua spoke in Luke 23:29, when he said, Blessed are the barren, the wombs not bearing, and the breasts not nursing, there might also be a connection to another statement that Yeshua made in Luke eleven twenty seven through 28. A woman in a crowd yells out to Yeshua and says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. More than that, blessed are those who hear, or Shema, the word of God and safeguard him. In hearing these words, this actually might be connected to a statement about Messiah, the son of Joseph, based on a prophecy from Genesis 49, verses 25 through 26. By the God of your father, who will help you, and by the Almighty, in Hebrew this is Ve'et Shaddai, who will bless you, with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. In Hebrew, this is Shadim Verecham. So I'm connecting this idea of this blessing of the breasts and of the womb concerning Joseph in Genesis 49, 25-26, with that of what this woman said, in Luke eleven twenty seven through 28, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you, which appears to me as a clear reference to Messiah, the son of Joseph. Okay, now let's go on to the third point that Yeshua spoke in Luke 23, 30 through 31. Then they speaking of the oppressors of all of the people, will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Now this statement appears to echo the prophetic judgment written about in Ezekiel 20, 47-48. Read it with me. And say to the forest of the south, Hear, or Shema, the word of Jehovah. Thus says the master Jehovah, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree in you. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by him. All flesh shall see that I, Jehovah, have kindled him. It shall not be quenched. The idea that I'm getting here is that when Yeshua said, For if they do these things in the green wood, 
what will be done in the dry. I think it's very clear that he's saying, you have done this to me because I am green life to you, and you have chosen death. Therefore, when they become dry, that fire is going to burn them up. That's kind of what I'm seeing in it, okay? Now, when Yeshua stated these three points that he made in Luke 23, 27 through 31, I think the words may have possibly echoed the bold statement that he said in Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Baruch Shem Yehovah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yehovah. This testimony from the Greek text of Matthew 23, 37, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yehovah, or Baruch Ababa Shem Yehovah, this is, of course, a declaration that comes from the traditional Hebrew text of Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. However, I think there's much more going on here than meets the eye. This assertion Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yehovah appears to be a prophetic word about the teacher of righteousness, which is based on the prophetic writings of the Qumran sons of Tzadok. You see, in their scroll of Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26, which is found in 4Q84, column 35, Fragment 30, you can read Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26, as they understood it. They said, Please, Jehovah, save. Please, with a blessing, he comes in the name of Jehovah. You will likely recall this as Hosanna or Hoshiana, Hoshiana. The religious Jerusalem Judeans among the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they knew precisely to whom this was referring. Of course they did. They knew it was the prophetic word given to them by the Qumran house of Tzadok concerning the teacher of righteousness, whom they called the just one or the righteous one. In other words, the phrase the just one or the tzaddik was really unique terminology to the house of tzaddok priestly group. The phrase the tzaddik or the just one was recognized as applying to Mashiach, the anointed one. We can see this in the words of Peter, Stephen, and yes, even Paul who were also followers of the doctrines of the Qumran sons of Tzadok in their teachings that we have preserved for us now in the Dead Sea Scrolls from 1948. 
permit me to show you what I mean. Here are Peter's words in Acts 3, 13-14. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Yeshua, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One. This is actually Pharisaic Judean terminology. And not only that, but you denied the just one. This is specifically referring to the house of Tzedok terminology, the just one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now, likewise, Stephen said in Acts 7.52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Again, this is Qumran terminology unique to the house of Tzedok teachers who were killed off. They were murdered by the earlier generation of the Pharisees around 175 before Yeshua came on the scene. And he says, you were the ones who have become the betrayers and the murderers. I think that would have just stung them right into the heart. Now, similarly, Paul also said in Acts 22, 14, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one. Again, Sadiq, which is terminology unique to the Qumran house of Tzadok, and to hear the voice of his mouth. So when Yeshua quoted Psalm 118, verse 26, and he said, Baruch Ababa Shem Yehovah, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yehovah, as also the common people who heard that phrase spoken to them in Matthew 21, 15 through 16, the pronouncement confirmed Yeshua's identity as the just one, the teacher of righteousness who was to come precisely as the Qumran sons of Tzedok prophetically wrote concerning his appearance. They knew this teacher of righteousness was soon to arrive. They were prophets, which is what they understood decades prior to Messiah Yeshua's birth, based on the prophetic word of Joel or Yoel 2.17. Let the Kohanim, those who serve Yehovah, weep, between the porch and the altar. Now, these Kohanim in the days of Yoel can only mean one group of people. That is the sons of Tzedok, who were called by Yehovah to be judges and teachers in Israel, because this is the word that established Tzedok long before the political party of the Pharisees came on the scene. So it's these sons of Tzedok who are the Kohanim, and Joel says, Let them say, Spare your people, Yehovah, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations or the Goyim should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Messiah was called the teacher. Matthew 23.10 And do not be called teachers, For one is your teacher, the Messiah or the Mashiach. 
He is the just one, the righteous one. And in Matthew 26, 18 through 19, Yeshua said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Yeshua had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When the illegitimate chief priests, who were not of the house of Tzedok, along with scribes of the political party of the Pharisees, when they all saw the wonderful of Yeshua and heard his words, as they also heard the doctrines of Peter and Stephen and Paul and all the other disciples, the Judean religious leaders were deeply offended. Yeah, they took great offense with so many believing in Yeshua, thinking that Yeshua was the promised Messiah, the just one, the tzaddik of the house of Tzaddok, and what was prophesied about him. This is why the Judean religious leaders said in Matthew 21, 15 through 16, Do you hear what these people are saying? Referring to all of the people who were crying out in the temple saying, Hoshiana to the son of David. Yeah, they took great offense because they knew what this meant. They knew that their illegal ruling authority as judges and teachers and priests would soon come to an end. In the texts of the Thanksgiving Psalms scroll, referred to as Hodayot from Cave One at the Qumran, so the house of Tzedok wrote, they planned evil. Literally, they planned Belial, or in Hebrew, Bliyaal, against me to replace your Torah, which is taught in my heart with smooth things, referring to all the false laws which the Pharisees taught to your people. These false laws are called smooth things by the house of Tzedek. Shaul, or Paul, also taught a very similar message about Bli Ya'al, or Belial, which was Qumran House of Tzedek terminology, replicated as a warning between those who follow rabbinic authority and those who don't. This is precisely the focus of Paul's letter in its context. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14-7-1. And I'm going to add some editorial comments in parenthetical statements, okay? Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, meaning rabbinic authority versus the sons of Tzedek authority. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, referring to the Qumran sons of light lit up by solar reckoning versus the Jerusalem Pharisaic sons of darkness following lunar reckoning. So Paul goes on to say, what accord has the just one with Bliyaal or Belial? Or what part has a believer defined in Paul's mind as those siding with the house of Sadok with an unbeliever? defined in Paul's mind as those siding with Pharisaic rabbinic law? And what agreement has the 
house of Elohim among the true Qumran believers, what does it have to do with idols referring to Pharisaic rabbinic authority? Then Paul says, for you are the house of the living Elohim. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their Elohim and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, meaning come out from the rabbinic system in that context. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, referring to false or smooth doctrines of the Judeans, referring to the house of Sadoq doctrines of holiness, in the fear of Elohim. Hopefully, with these ideas, we can better understand what the new covenant of Yeshua is really all about. Hence, Yeshua's message to all the world of his time, and even to our own time, remains the same. From Matthew 23, 37. And you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yehovah, Baruch Shem Yehovah. This is all of what Yeshua observed in the one year of his ministry as he lived, died, resurrected, and ascended according to these ideas, which are based on Ezekiel 44, 15 through 16, and Ezekiel 44, 23 through 24. In our next program, episode 132 and part 19 in this series, we're going to look at the crucifixion of Yeshua through the events that shaped that very day. We're going to look at what his crucifixion meant and why Yeshua is called the Passover Lamb. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio.